Maj Duj Dacic. Honor your friend, slay your enemies, and study your, what is it, plants? Yeah, I mean, yeah, sometimes it's plants. My name's Beckett. I am Ma'ach. The storm is over. We can resume our battle. There is a clearing over there that- <laughs> Remove yourself! What is the meaning of this? I'm hugging you. Klingons do not hug. We're both trapped on this planet, surrounded by various aliens. We should work together. Wait, what? No, we must finish the fight. You already said I proved my to I said humanity proved its to We are not allies. Yes, we are. Transfer complete. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the planet. This is Tyler Orton, dreaming about Beverly Crusher teaching me how to tap dance. <laughs> and we're here this week to talk about the latest episode of Lower Decks, the penultimate episode of Season 4, The Inner Fight. Yeah, I guess this is following up on what was kind of flagged earlier on in the season the Ferenginar episode in which um mariner's best ferengi friend was like uh seriously what are you rebelling against right now and what have you got yeah well look i, I I'm, I'm glad that we're finally kind of acknowledging that we've got a character that maybe shouldn't just be this kind of in a, a static hamster wheel of similar character uh traits and i Going into this, I, I did not expect it would come all the way back to the episode The First Duty, you know, <laughs> featuring uh, the initial appearance of Cito Jaxa. Uh, uh -huh. And then we even got uh, an old uh, Robert Dunkey. Robert Dunkey. <laughs> Robert Dunkey. <laughs> That's our short name for him. Uh, Robbie Duncan McNeil um, getting the, the little surprise cameo. Not so much a surprise cameo, but I was like, are, are, they, are we not going to get Nick Locarno until like the season finale is that the big guest star there but oh uh, yeah. yeah it was interesting i mean first duty is like one of one of my top favorite tng episodes and um uh, yeah I, I i don't like i i guess what cam you and i have been kind of whelmed by this season this is where i, I i'm I, i'm enjoying an episode like this because a you're doing interesting things with the characters b you're playing around with the star trek universe in a way that's interesting as well which i, I kind of think that the show's just kind of been like on, on a little bit of cruise control ever since tuvix the season premiere where mm -hmm. i've just been fine with the episodes I, I and look i don't need these to be laugh riots i i was not laughing my butt off the um the bail stuff was funny you know yeah but um beyond that like I, I was just enjoying this episode overall you know like like this is giving me what i want from lower decks and i just my, my complaint is that it took us like eight episodes since the finale or since the premiere to get there yeah i agree like this episode in terms of like a kind of mythology lower decks episode was really strong and it had enough little funny moments so i could go okay it still qualifies as the half-hour sitcom that I enjoy, but it wasn't like your, uh, you know, kind of like the really hijinks-laden Lower Decks episode type. I really like when this show kind of chews on a storyline that ties to an aspect of Star Trek canon that another show would just never do. You know, when they had like the Packlid threat in season one and then moving into season two, brilliant. You're never going to tune into Picard season four 
and see the Packlids as the primary adversaries of the season. But it allowed Lower Decks to expand upon that aspect of the canon in interesting ways, tell a story that's probably the best Packlid story we ever got. And this shows now willingness to take on Nick Lacarno, a character who, for those that maybe don't know who Nick Lacarno is or don't remember, um, he was the character Robert Duncan McNeil played in a TNG episode where he was a cadet who pulled off a maneuver with Wesley and a couple others that resulted in a death. The character was at some point considered to play like the Tom Paris figure on Voyager, and that was not the case. They created Tom Paris instead, perhaps to not pay the original writer. I don't know. That no, that was exactly. The That's why? why. Okay. Yeah. So I, I guess Ron, Ron Moore is cashing at least like one paycheck this week, maybe another one next week. Oh, good for him. So yeah. like. Nick Lacarno has kind of been almost like, I don't want to say a running joke, because he's a pretty interesting character in his TNG episode, but it's always been kind of like this oddity of having McNeil play like these two characters in the Star Trek universe, but it's never really acknowledged. And I know there are character actors who play different roles, but these two look, I mean, there are mirror images of each other. And that was always kind of amusing to finally give like Nick Lacarno what seems like more of a character arc. I think that's fantastic, and I think that's exactly what Lower Decks should be doing. Well, I, I, a couple points I, uh, that you brought up that I, I want to address here. Um, it would have been amazing if Voyager was the episode to address, you know, the Nick Lacarno of it all, yeah. and nobody commented on the fact that uh, he and Tom Paris looked identical. It was just like, oh yeah, um, maybe he was the, uh, uh, the uh, a pilot for hire that ended up on the Equinox or something like that. That could have been fun. Or actually, you know what? It would have been fun for me, but it would have been incredibly confusing for other uh, viewers of the show here. Um, the other thing, um, Pacled's season four of Star Trek Picard. Um, I, could you imagine how serious <laughs> the Pacled threat would have been treated? And it would have taken about like nine episodes for them to do anything interesting with the Pacleds as well. Um, that you know, I, I would have been all aboard for that. Loved ones would have fallen at the hands of the Pacleds in a Picard yes. season four. <laughs> <laughs> and it would have been dealt with very seriously. We would have had grim hour-long contemplations on grief and the Pac-Led threat that looms over them. How much does it, um, I don't know, make make your nose wrinkle when you think of the fact that uh, this Star Trek universe is so tiny in that, you know, Cito Jaxa and Mariner were friends way back <laughs> in the day at Starfleet Academy? Uh it is a small universe, but I kind of loved it for the reason that, like, actually, I have a love and a hate, here, so I'll start with the love. What I loved about it was that it ties back to Cedar Jaxa, of course, was in the episode Lower Decks, which is kind of the inspiration for this show. So tying the kind of two Lower Decks characters together is really, really fun. On the flip side of that, I was thinking about my sister watching this episode, and she has really enjoyed watching Lower Decks, but she's not someone with a you know, great understanding of the history of Star Trek canon. And I was really contemplating how well dramatically the Cedo Jaxa reveal would work for those viewers. So I'm curious, Cameron, you know, that episode Lower Decks and uh, Cedo Jaxa's journey there, mm -hmm. it, it does make the senior crew members out to be kind of sociopaths in which Worf <laughs> and Picard essentially guilt trip her into going on a suicide mission to get this Cardassian dissident back behind the Cardassian border to you know kind of implement what have you um I guess it was a mission all for naught because uh the Federation of the Cardassians went to war anyway uh mm -hmm. but um do you think there is a possibility that it could be revealed that you know Cedo Jax is actually alive and a 
does that um, rehabilitate, you know, um, what we have always thought of as kind of an unjust death? Or B, does, does that actually kind of ruin that entire episode and the, the gut punch that it delivers if you find out, you know, 25, almost 30 years later that, oh, yeah, yeah, she was okay in the end. Don't worry about her. I think it would hurt the original episode because I think one of the things about Star Trek is we see that lower ranking members do have a <laughs> it seems a decent mortality rate when you look at say the original series or various other shows like if you're like a newer member on the ship chances are things may turn against you um but to me like the whole element of the lower decks the episode that makes it so great is that it is a very funny episode we all laugh about the you know riker being this kind of intimidating authority figure to make uh, small talk with in a bar. Like, stuff like that is really fun. But it's that emotional gut punch that there are, like, genuine stakes to what these individuals do on the ship that really makes that episode work as a dramatically satisfying episode as well. So to undo that, I wouldn't be crazy about it. I don't think I'd be that happy if they had Cedo Jaxa come back on Lower Decks. I don't know if that's even the show that I want to see a payoff to Cedo Jaxa coming back. I know, you know, but I think there's... My my worry is that maybe Lower Decks would do that, and I don't want them to. I think it's just kind of like, let's leave, you know, like like one of these most iconic episodes of TNG. Let's leave its legacy alone, no matter how problematic it might be. You know, that, that mm-hmm. it's still, <laughs> no matter how sociopathic it might be, you know, I, I don't want them to necessarily touch on what that episode delivered. You bring it back Nick Locarno, which kind of touches on the legacy of, you know, Lower Decks with regards to the Aceto Jaxa connection there to uh, the first duty of which she also appeared in with Locarno. I don't know. I am I, I'm, I'm curious where they ultimately go in the finale. Uh, I am curious what... Um, <laughs> What Locarno's going to be up to, though, as well. Um, is he the guy behind making all these ships disappear and faking the fact that they are, like, being destroyed? Or is there something else going on here? There's something else going on. I don't think Nick Locarno is going to be, like, the big evil bad of the season. I think there's going to be a bit of a misdirect going on here because they were, you know, t- he was taking these ships leaving the crews on this planet that many of our characters spend, you know, hang out, hang out on in this episode. I, I think like there's a purpose that he's behind what he's doing, but the episode, you know, that it will follow will reveal what it is. And I wonder if it's almost going to be a redemption arc for Nick Carno versus what we've gotten in the previous seasons where it's like, you know, last season, evil Admiral and his drone ships that we have to have a fight with. I think it would be way more interesting if because it's Nick Carno a lot of the audience kind of gets their back up like, uh-oh, that guy's bad news. And the twist is that he's actually trying to do something noble, maybe in ways that aren't necessarily the most well thought out. Okay. Well, let me pose another question for you with regards to the the TNG sort of legacy of it all. Um, among the officers or former Starfleet folks that uh, needed uh, to be not rescued, so to speak, but uh, at least they need to get in contact with, uh, we had Seven of Nine, who would she be a Fenris Ranger at this point? <laughs> Don't make me think about Fenris Rangers. Because <laughs> uh, I, I guess we know that Echeb, within maybe five, six, seven years of this episode, he's getting vivisected. Yeah. And Seven is a Fenris Ranger by then. Uh, we also have Beverly Crusher. It'd be cool if we saw maybe Toddler Jack Crusher in uh, 
the, the background of uh, so the, the Elios or something like that, <laughs> her ship. And then we have Thomas Riker. So does that mm-hmm. confirm that Thomas Riker did indeed escape from that Cardassian uh, prison uh, camp? You know, like maybe he was free during the Dominion War and uh, kind of given a clean slate? I think it does establish that, yes. I think Thomas Riker is on the cards to return, I guess, to Lower Decks. And it would be amazing. Jonathan Frakes has given his all to these animated Riker performances. Maybe not so much the very short treks. I, I don't know as much about those. <laughs> but when it comes to his work on Lower Decks, I think it was incredible. And so I would love to see what he would do, especially if we had a scene of dueling Rikers in an episode of Lower Decks. I, I, at the next convention, you need to ask Jonathan Frakes uh, it, to reenact the nose-picking episode of uh, <laughs> The Very Short Treks, which for folks that did not watch The Very Short Treks, which there are a lot, um, that really was the premise of an episode. Aliens that pick their noses a lot. Uh, people, look it up. It's, it, it's there on YouTube. Do you think Frakes read the full script for that or just his lines? I think... Frakes is such a company man, and not necessarily in a bad way, but he's such a company man, he just kind of went with it. He's just like, okay, I mean, I'm sure this will turn into something that a a brilliant mind can deliver to audiences. And I, I wonder what he thought after after watching this. And I wonder what Gates McFadden thought after, <laughs> after watching the nose-picking alien episode. Like Gates McFadden, a bit of a classy lady, works so much in the theater, does some fantastic work there. I wonder what is going through her head, especially given how passionate she was about a proper arc for Beverly in Picard season three. That when she's reading the script for this very short trek, it's like, uh, okay. <laughs> like, I, I know. It's like she pitched Beverly's season three Picard arc and they're like, okay. We'll give you a lot of screen time, but you have to agree to this nose-picking alien short, uh, very short trek first. And she's like, okay, we'll do. She Out of all the um, main cast members from TNG, who's who's the more serious one? Is it LeVar Burton or is it Gates McFadden? Just from your own experiences. I would say LeVar Burton seems like the most serious, probably followed by Gates McS- uh, McFadden. Okay, okay. Well, Cam, um, I, I, I don't think you could put Thomas Riker's... Do, do you agree with that? Uh, the thing is, I, I, I've seen more levity out of uh, Burton at times. Or have I? I don't know. I mean, remember, <laughs> I just, I, I, I've seen Gates McFadden get annoyed more often than I've seen LeVar Burton get annoyed, at, at the conventions at least. That, that's just my experience. That's true. I did see LeVar Burton, like, recreate his, like, role that he did on TNG, you know, underneath the uh, the lowering engineering door. And he did that on stage once. So I'm like, it takes someone willing to be a bit of a cut-up to do that. So maybe he gets points for that. Maybe that is kind of like raising him a little bit above uh, Gates McFadden in the yucks department. Yeah. And for listeners, Cam had a very uh, bad experience with uh, LeVar Burton at a Seattle convention once. And and uh, maybe that's why Cam uh, has uh, ha- initially had those actors ranked the way that he did. Don't ever ask LeVar Burton at a convention about Jordy's dating life and lack of yeah. success therein. Yeah, yeah. Uh, LeVar did not take too kindly to that. I think it was being very protect- protective of his character, though. Like, he cared very much about that. And, you know, you come back and, and see what we got to see LeVar Burton do, uh, having become like a father now. And I thought that was great. I, again, we keep saying this. I, I think um, Jordy's character was one of the top three highlights of season three of Picard. Big time. And I would like to think that my question 
gave LeVar Burton the fuel to go to the showrunners of Picard season three and demand that arc. He's like, look, some little like smart aleck who thinks he's real funny was being really disrespectful to me at a convention. I just can't deal with like those little POSs like that. So people, you know, let, let, let's prove this Dorcas Malorcas wrong. Okay. <laughs> I am tired of the Jordy dating life jokes. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I want to go back to Mariner a little bit because, you know, um, going back to kind of that revelation about the whole Pseudo-Jaxa thing, and she said something very important here, and just not not something I, I kind of realized on my own independently here, but she said, you know, uh, to the Klingon, like, look, I don't want to be a general mm-hmm. and send my friends off to die. I just want to be an ensign. Like, I want to be an explorer, just like Cedo, Cedo uh, Jaxa just wanted to be an explorer, not a spy, and talking about kind of the sacrifices that maybe you have to make if you want to be in Starfleet. Um, that said, she, she was doing a lot of exploratory work in that archaeology uh, ship that she was uh, on at the end of Season 3. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, Small Universe, uh, Picard, with his vast, vast uh, wine money, was uh, <laughs> funding that entire expedition there. So, I, I don't know. I, I, a little bit of this is kind of the the I, I think the writer is trying to not retcon her motivations, but try to find something interesting that they may not have initially realized as they're writing the character in episodes past. Yeah, I mean, there was kind of this concern, like the Mariner's behavior was sometimes verging into that you know running around phasering people kind of mentality, where you're like, this goes a little too extreme. I like that this episode was dealing with it in a way that tried to find a psychological underpinning for it. Um, I, I, I guess I was like, I, I liked that they tried. I question where the, you go with the character going forward because is she going to be now like solve like solve these issues and move forward with her career? Are we going to have a Mariner who wants to fight to stay a little more static? I don't know. We can't, we probably won't even know till next season. Like, do you, how do you think this is going to inform Mariner's journey going forward? I just hope it means that instead of having a death wish, uh, instead of like guzzling booze nonstop, which honestly, that only kind of restarted in season four. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of, it felt almost like by season three, she had kind of found this equilibrium, especially in that episode in which she was kind of like bullied off the, uh, the ship I think that was like episode nine of season three. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you come back and it almost seems as if, you know, a character takes a step backward in this season in order to get her to this arc. And maybe what we're going to see moving forward is she still retains a lot of those smart Alec traits, but she's not going to be nearly <laughs> nearly the psychopath that she has been in, in some of the previous adventures that we've seen. I really thought a lot about the Voyager episode Risk Addiction. Watching this episode, uh, which is or the one extreme where... risk, extreme risk. That's right. Yeah. Risk addiction was the subtitle for Basic Instinct too. Um, so yes, uh, that, the, I don't that... want to know what's on your mind, Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, yes, that Belana Torres story where she was doing like extreme sports to help kind of like cope with her her grief and basically PTSD. Like that was a beach volleyball. <laughs> it was a decent episode, uh, not a great one, but a decent character episode for Balana. And I kept thinking about that episode when I was watching this one, where you had Mariner always putting herself in harm's way, and almost like, like someone who was addicted to it. And 
that there was this underlying reason for it. And I, I was wondering if they were thinking about that Bellana story or if it was just entirely coincidental. But you can kind of see the similarities between the two characters. I I, I don't know if it's coincidental. I I, I just think that there there's all there are always going to be echoes when mm. you you are writing a franchise in which there are close to one thousand episodes. You know, at this point, that's true. But like, I, like I, I, I see the parallels that you are drawing here, and it, it does make sense, though. Um, yeah. Look, uh, there, there, there's some other stuff uh, that I did love that the episode touched on. You know, that old trope of, um, hey, look, guys, we're Starfleet officers, and we need to get some really important information. <laughs> so we're gonna walk into like an underground bar in our Starfleet uniforms and try to squeeze this information from uh, the, the criminal underground. And, oh, wait, it, it, it's not working, huh? I do like how they kind of flip that on its head there. We did have Freeman like not being like uh, the dumb captain and actually having uh, Billups uh, in that pretty cool-looking Mysterio-like sort of uh, uh, bounty hunter uniform that we saw there. Yeah, this felt like a little bit of a nod to Star Wars as well. It had a Maz Eisley kind of vibe and even a little bit of a Boba Fett kind of thing going on with the bounty hunter billups. I thought this was actually really fun because it set up, you know, uh, Freeman as seemingly bumbling through this mission. And I liked that ultimately it was a ruse. So you kind of got to have your cake and eat it too, where you get to see kind of like funny bumbling following, you know, from that, like the revelation that Freeman was in control and knew what she was doing the whole time. So I thought that was well staged and surprising. Like there was never a single moment where I thought, that's Billups as that bounty hunter. It was a good reveal. Okay, I predicted it from uh, the first second. Mm, it, it, you know, mm. They're just telegraphing it totally there. You're right. Yeah, you are like sitting there going, where's Billups? Where's Billups? Yeah. Every second of the episode. Uh, but I mean, it, it did bring me back. I think of the specific TNG episode, though. I'm, it, I was thinking I was Gambit when they thought that uh, Picard was dead. And mm. so they were just going to like CD bars in their Starfleet uniforms and like, I don't know, Cam, what if uh, you're a cop in a uniform and you walked into like an opium den and <laughs> it's like, hello, uh, tell me all the secret information that the criminal underground only knows, fine young drug addict. You know, it's like, yeah. uh, not sure if that's really how you're going to get information from a source. I did half expect a um, Clint Howard uh, cameo with the yeah, Baylock puppet. Yeah, well, like, they set up the Baelic and made it look like the creakiest puppet humanly possible, only to then reveal that it wasn't a puppet. I thought that was actually a really good gag, but I was expecting, actually, yeah, Clint Howard to be even, like, the Baelic character, or whatever that character's name was. Has he done voice work yet on Lower Decks, or am I just confabulating that? Like, uh, the the last—he's done something—oh, uh, no, he did uh, that Discovery Season 1 finale episode— what else has he done in Star Trek uh, since, I guess, the Enterprise episode in which he played a Ferengi? Um, I don't think anything, right? It's just those three appearances, I think. Um, okay. For all I have uh, forgotten, it, maybe he was like featured in one of those short, uh, very short treks and, like Garrick, has completely vanished from my mind. But yeah, I don't think so. Or maybe he was the first choice for that UFC fighter that... Uh, Awashikin fought in the last <laughs> season of Star Trek Discovery. I did think it was a little surprising that like when they had him show up in uh, season one Discovery, I really thought like maybe the doors were opened for like seeing some of these like these um kind of legacy Star Trek actors popping up on live action Star Trek. You know, like we talked a lot about Jeffrey Combs being on a live action show. 
and it really hasn't been the case. You've had Clint Howard and not a not much else really, right? Who would be kind of ripe for the picking though? Hmm. Well, I mean, Jeffrey Combs is the one I go to. Like playing a new character on a live action show would be great. Um I would have expected maybe like Von Armstrong would play a character at some point. Right. Yeah. That's who I had in mind as well. Yeah, like some of these go-to Star Trek character actors um that you know would pop up all the time and I'm surprised they haven't even just out of kind of the honorary status that some of them have as these kind of long-term Star Trek character actors just like the fun of having them pop up in an episode. You could have easily had Von Armstrong be, I don't know, like a Klingon during the Klingon War arc or something. You know, you know, uh, season three Picard showrunner Terry Metalis, you know, every couple of weeks he'll uh, surface with a new interview talking about season three and he'll have like <laughs> new tidbits of a of a cameo character that we wanted to bring back. And it, to me, I just it really sounds to me like it's just like some idea randomly floated in the writer's room or something like that. Sure. I, maybe one of these days we'll find out that there is like a, uh, a Weiyun clone still in prison uh, by you know, you know Starfleet authorities and we're going to get a... a quick glimpse of Wei-Yoon in one of those uh, season three Picard episodes. That could be kind of cool. Um, I know Terry Metalis is signed up for Vegas this summer, so um, maybe he'll have more tidbits to share with us. I've, I'm sure he'll have more between now and the next uh, 10 months as well. <laughs> He's just like digging through the garbage looking for uh, post-its uh, for Picard season three. And who knows, yeah, what teases for Star Trek Legacy uh, by this summer. <laughs> Alex Kurtzman. We have heard the fans. Yes, <laughs> Star Trek Legacy. We have heard the fans. It's like, yeah, okay. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Cameron, the uh, the appetite for Starfleet Academy and, and st- Section Thirty One, um, not there, <laughs> and yet, I mean, they're going full force with it, despite uh, people actually being interested in a Star Trek Legacy thing. And and it also seems easier to market if you've got like seven of nine. As part of like your your main marketing materials there, because that's somebody that just even mainstream Star Trek audiences recognize, you know, other than like, I I, I don't know, Cam, like, <laughs> is uh, uh, Tilly going to be the, the spearheading the marketing campaign if she's featured in like the Starfleet Academy uh, TV series? Um, I mean, it seems like she's going to be the lead. So I guess so. I guess so. Okay. <laughs> People, it's like, why? I just like, we're, we're, it just seems like low-hanging fruit to do, like, something different, you know? Um, Is it just stubbornness on, like, Kurtzman and team's part at this point? Like, they announced this Starfleet Academy. Everyone wants, like, legacy. That's all I keep hearing, I'm sure, is Star Trek legacy tweets and whatever. But they're like, we said we were doing Starfleet Academy. We are doing Starfleet Academy, whether they like it or not. Well, it, it, it's also, like... They they want to be confident in their own creative decisions, and if mm-hmm. they dump their own creative idea in favor of something that they did not come up with, you know, like Alex Kurtzman, like he's tr- he's got to earn his paycheck somehow, you know. Yeah. But I don't know. I just like I don't expect. Look, maybe my expectations are just going to be so low going into Academy that it will blow me away. But it, it doesn't exactly have like. The Kurtzman pedigree, like, you know, there is no Kurtzman pedigree. So it's mostly me being, um, like, wowed by shows coming from other folks, you know, like, um, you know, uh, Lower Decks, Prodigy, for example, you know. Um, And 
Uh, even, uh, you know, Akiva Goldsman, who uh, we weren't really fans of with his work on, uh, say, uh, uh, Picard seasons one and two. Um, I don't know. Uh, he's a showrunner, uh, co-creator of Strange New Worlds, you know, and it, it just sounds as if not a whole lot of involvement from Kurtzman when it comes to the three Star Trek shows that we've been enjoying in this new era. I also wonder if there's a little bit of like apprehension about the future of the franchise in that something like Starfleet Academy, they see very much as an entry point probably for a next generation of fans versus something like a legacy, which is very much targeting an aging demo of fans that are you know, going to be shrinking in numbers over the coming decades. Yeah, but I mean, like, uh, they're like, okay, we want younger fans, so let's get rid of Star Trek Prodigy, you know? And, and that's coming <laughs> well, from the Paramount Plus side of things versus CBS Studios, which sure. uh, it, it's confusing. They both share a parent company, but uh, as some folks may or may not know, um, like, Prodigy has been axed from Paramount Plus, but it's been picked up by Netflix. And I, I mean, I hope it reaches new, younger audiences. We shall see, but I, I don't know. Like, I, I still... Th- I still think like um, Jerry Ryan in her fifties, and you know um, what was the uh, the name of the Jack Crusher actor? Uh, I'm blanking on. Oh, Ed Spilliers. Yeah, who's uh, in his fifties uh, as well, uh, despite <laughs> the fact that uh, he played a teenager in season three of Star Trek: Picard. Uh, they're still not as geriatric as the uh, cast uh, that the next gen uh, uh, cast was in season three of Picard. No, that is very accurate. Very accurate. I, I think like Legacy would get more buzz out of the gate than Starfleet Academy, but I can kind of understand that they might look at Academy as, I mean, I don't think it's going to succeed, but I could see why they might think it's vital that they bring in a newer audience. I'm just They want to do a YA show, like a young adult show, and... Uh, like uh, they want to essentially have their own version of Riverdale, right? Yeah. But I just I I don't know if the kids, uh, the thirteen year olds are going to be like, wow, this Star Trek show, like this like this Star Trek soap opera, that that's what I've been craving. Like as in new fans, like believe me, I got into Star Trek when I was like a kid, you know. But like I don't know if I would have gotten into like at age thirteen, I would have gotten into soapy star trek like the star trek dawson's creek or anything like that i i it was you know so that, that that's what it, it, it kind of bugs me as well it, it's because like kids can still get into star trek like i think a, a lot of the fandom um found star trek while they were kids but it and it, but it wasn't the version of star trek where you're dropping f-bombs or showing off like klingon nudity or anything like that like discovery mm-hmm. well i think like strange new worlds walks the balance really well where it can play to the older fans but like it does wacky things like the Lower Decks crossover or the all-musical episode that have, I think, more potential to just stand out in the marketplace and be appealing. And then, you know, you've got Sexy Spock and like a somewhat younger supporting cast on that show as well. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think there's like just also the problem. It's on like Paramount Plus. So yeah, it just doesn't have the reach that Netflix would, for example, or something like that. But I, I don't know. Like, I can only imagine being, you know, Kurtzman, I think, is in his maybe early 50s, late 40s, somewhere in there. I can only imagine sitting in a room of, you know, writers and whatever of similar ages and, like, trying to crack what, you know, like, 18-year-olds are going to enjoy in Star Trek. 
He's going to Ed Spillier's um, asking <laughs> what what Gen Z is really into. Ed's like, what is Gen Z? <laughs> uh, hey, look, if you're a boomer like Ed Spillier's, like you can't keep up with all the lingo. He's the greatest generation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, he's the silent generation. <laughs> Folks, we're only joking because this man was clearly like well into his 30s, but he was playing somebody like 15 years younger than him, which was like very obviously 15 years younger than him, which I, I, no end of my, to that amusement um, when it comes to that particular character there. No, it's, it almost felt like a throwback to the days of like 1990s uh, television where you would cast like 28 year olds as like high school students. Yeah, like Luke Perry. Yeah, is yeah. Ed Spillier's playing <laughs> playing a uh, a cadet in um that you know you know how he jumped right through uh, Starfleet Academy in uh, the final what five minutes of uh, Star Trek Picard? I wonder yeah. if he's going uh, into the future to resume his uh, Starfleet Academy days, um, and, and that's why he's going to be playing like a cadet there. <laughs> is he the Dylan of Star Trek? Um. I, I kind of think of him as more of a Brian Austin Green. You know, if he, they just give him like that mm. single earring on like the side, and I think he's like, you know, totally there. I don't know. He's got a little bit uh, that like kind of like aloof, badass kind of vibe that Luke Perry would give off on that show. I think Ed Spillers might be Star Trek's answer to that character on 90210. No, you know what? I, I really, we're both wrong. I, I really ask who it is. Um, <laughs> He's the answer to uh, Brandon and Brenda's father um, on oh. Star Trek 90210. Okay, that's true. <laughs> Age-wise, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Cam, what are you hoping for from uh, the, the, the season finale of season four of uh, Lower Decks here? Um, I'm hoping for, I guess, A, a very simple point, some finality. I don't really want it to be something that's going to drag anything into the next season. I'm... Very happy if we used to have a two-parter ending the season and we can start somewhere else in season five. Um, I think I want them to surprise me because they didn't do that last year. All the drone ship stuff felt very kind of predictable and by the numbers. I'm really hoping that with this Nick Lacarno reveal, he only had a couple of lines at the end of the episode, that they are going to do something with this character that I look to Lower Decks too, which is surprise me, catch me off guard, like... The way they used even like, um, you know, the return of like Leah Brahms on Lower Decks was like really fun last season. Do something with Nick Lacarno where I'm going to walk away going like, that is a really exciting and fun idea. And this finale is going to stick with me the way that something like, um, you know, the season one finale did, which was really good. The No Small Parts episode. They haven't had, I think, a home run finale since that one. So that would be awesome if they could replicate that kind of energy well it's you know mike mcmahon the uh, the creator of the show he really has been like kind of uh pumping up uh the last two episodes and i look i i, I really enjoyed this episode more so than any other episode since the premiere so uh he kind of delivered um so far so i do have confidence that he'll deliver something really interesting and look if you're starting with nick lacarno I, i'm sure there's going to be other surprises that uh, will uh, kind of uh, take us away as well so uh, look, I, I I'm uh, optimistic. I, I I just want them. Let's show that Mariner is not running in place, though, and mm. I have confidence that they'll do that. But what I wonder, okay, you know how I was saying earlier, it felt as if her character kind of took some steps back this season. 
Yeah. That's what I wonder. Is is she going to be, you know, kind of a, a two steps forward, one step back kind of character? Or because it almost seems arbitrary. Like there are characters like that in television. You know, you can point to like maybe a, a, a Tony Soprano who um, seems to learn some stuff, make some strides in, in some ways, and then he just falls back into old patterns. And it's fascinating to watch that character do so. It's not frustrating. I, I, maybe I want um, Mariner to be kind of up there, you know, it's, it's uh, not, not, not in the sociopathic sort of way, but in being like kind of a complex character in which you can be uh, somebody who, you know, kind of learns some lessons, but also takes steps back in other ways, but w- without it just kind of repeating itself that I, I kind of felt like we got that a little bit throughout much of this season. Yeah, like, I don't need this, like, kind of hard-drinking, violent Mariner. Like, that's not the Mariner that I find necessarily funny. And I think it was my sister pointed out in the crossover episode, like, how much fun she was on the live-action show. Yes. And it wasn't like Mariner was doing homicidal things in that episode. It's the fact that, like, Tawny Newsom can be really funny and deliver lines in a really funny way. So, like, to me, I get more enjoyment out of a mariner who is a little bit of uh you know a little rough edged but is like mispronouncing words and kind of going on these stream of consciousness little monologues that are really funny and just the fact that like having someone who is that kind of like quirky in that way is not common in star trek so she's funny just by contrast to all the various kind of cliched types of or i shouldn't even say cliche just the trope characters of star trek who tend to be a little stiffer I think that's what makes the character fun is she is that kind of like, you know, like the um, what's the, the fly in the ointment kind of character. So I think if you stick with that, you're good. You can evolve the character. You don't have to constantly be like, how do we find a dramatic reason to have her like, you know, going into like violent blood rages all the time? Who's been uh, the next best fly in the ointment character in Star Trek among the main cast members? Um... Barkley, in some ways, is in his is obviously less by um, intention. Like Mariner is someone who charges headlong in, whereas Barkley is just a very nervous Nelly character who kind of buffs up against a lot of the other characters. Um, so I would say he is because he doesn't do things the conventional way that other characters do. Um, well, what about series regulars, though? Series regulars. Okay. Um, I am going. Well, Cork is a series regular, but he's not a member of Starfleet, so I don't know that I would count him. Um, Okay, my question is, who is a fly in the ointment character among main characters uh, after Mariner? I I would say that it's Cork, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Cork is number two, I would say, yes. Yeah. Um, So that's the obvious one. Mm -hmm. Who comes after that, though? Uh, Okay, I mean, Worf can. Depending Uh on the storyline, Worf can be the one who... Um, gets himself into trouble that other characters wouldn't, as we saw a few times on TNG. Uh, Cam, you know, I think we... there's a very obvious one, but uh, okay, okay, workshop um, this, workshop this. Okay. Um. So, well, now you're just making me think as to who you could be thinking of. Uh. Okay. Okay. Who, who is it? I think once I say the name, I'm sure it'll be obvious. But who are you thinking? Michael Burnham. Of course. Yeah. 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 She's just, she's always uh, going against orders. She also seems to have like this messiah complex that can manifest in a bit of a death wish as well. Uh, mm-hmm. She doesn't have a substance abuse problem, um, uh, although I'm sure they're going to give her one for like a single episode next season for whatever reason. And then she'll overcome it, um, just like Rafi did 
um, yeah. in one episode of Picard by going cold turkey in her quarters. And then <laughs> addiction issues fixed. Uh, that Yeah, that's how it works. Um, you know, so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, look, I, I optimistic about uh, next week's episode. Then I guess we've got a little while to think about um, what, what uh, Discovery will bring in early 2024. Then after <laughs> that, like, wh- what are we going to see next? you think Prodigy has a chance of being like the next one coming out after uh, Star Trek Discovery? Or do you think Lower Decks is going to beat it? Uh, it usually comes out around uh, August, uh, September. Yeah, it's not going to be uh, Strange New Worlds. That's for sure. Uh, no. It's not going to be Starfleet Academy. So, yeah, I would say it's definitely a duel between the two animated shows. Um, I, huh. Lower Decks is less work, I think, in terms of, you know, obviously the animation element. Also, shorter seasons. I don't know if they, once it hits Netflix, if they would want to split Prodigy into, you know, 10-episode halves the way that, uh, or, well, like three or four episode chunks the way that Paramount Plus did. Like, maybe they would just want to run the 20 episodes um, consecutively. So, if they're willing to split it, I could see Prodigy being next. But if they don't, I think Lower Decks. Well, they said that, uh, so when we were in Vegas, the uh, creators of the show said that uh, season two of Prodigy would be completely in the can by December. Mm. So, you know, we do know that Discovery is already in the can and it's going to be premiering in early 2024. I I just think, you know, like, my guess is, you know, Netflix does 10 episodes in one uh, chunk, you know, maybe in the spring. We get Discovery and then maybe by the end of the year we get another chunk of uh, Prodigy. Oh, sorry, did I say... Did did I I meant to say you know Discovery Prodigy Lower Decks Prodigy if that yeah. makes sense yeah that makes sense here's an interesting question that we've never really had to deal with in this modern Trek era which is that like you know you have Discovery come out and then we're saying Prodigy seems like the one that would follow Discovery Prodigy's airing does absolutely nothing for Paramount Plus it's a Netflix show now. So, like, how hard are they looking to, like, get Lower Decks out quicker to keep those eyeballs on their streaming service? Because Trek fans could easily just cancel Paramount Plus and go watch, you know, um, watch Prodigy on Netflix for a while. Um, well, I don't, like, I don't think they're going to upend their plans for mm. delivering it. Because cause the thing is with Paramount Plus is they're going to have other shows that they plan on putting out there on their streaming service. And so I, I think they're thinking about it more holistically than saying like, oh, Netflix could have a another Star Trek show on at a, a you know, at the same time. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think they are more like, oh, no, we need to get the, uh, we need to get more episodes of Frasier on the air uh, so that they have like kind of a ongoing um kind of a feed of content available for Paramount Plus versus uh, a never-ending feed of Star Trek content, which mm-hmm. we're not getting nearly as much Star Trek content um, in 2024 as we were getting in 2022, which I think, what did we count, like 50 episodes total in 2022 aired? Right, yeah. Okay. Uh, which show makes it to the Paramount Plus first? 
The Section 31 movie or uh, Starfleet Academy? I'd say the Section 31 movie. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it both sound as if they're ready to start filming. And I think it's going to take, uh, you know, maybe one third the time to do this movie than it would take to do 10 episodes of, uh, you know, Strange New Worlds. Although there were some comments being made, like uh, the producers and the actors would love to do more than just 10 episodes. I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen in season three, but I don't know. Maybe uh, the the folks at uh, Paramount CBS are saying like, well, maybe maybe we can squeeze in a couple more of these sorts of standalone adventures if we want to get like kind of buzz still going about this uh, the Star Trek offerings within the Paramount Plus streaming service. Now that there are fewer Star Trek shows on that service, new new shows, I should say. Hmm. I'm wondering with the um section 31 movie like that will obviously be a you know paramount plus big premiere event they can advertise for their service but like they'll probably do like a very limited theatrical event right do you think they will like a one night only no you don't think so i don't think so no oh because i was going to ask you if they did how full is that theater well what was like what surprised us recently that uh had kind of a, a good showing in the theater it, it wasn't um killers of the flower moon there's something else that recently came out that uh was going to be on a streaming service fairly quick order versus when we saw it in in theaters wasn't there um well i i think this isn't relating to something we saw but i think the new exorcist was also on peacock right at okay. the same time it was opening in theaters and it did you know, reasonably well in theaters. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't like I. How how full is that theater, Cam? Mm. Um, not very full. Like I just like there, there's a big difference between um when we went and saw the what we left behind DS9 documentary in a packed theater. Yeah. Uh, all those years ago, in which you actually do have demand for that particular uh feature film. I just I just don't feel any buzz for a Section 31 movie, though. No, and I'll be also interested to see if uh, the Voyager documentary that I think I started crowdfunding around the time Ed Spilliers was celebrating his 40th birthday. Nice, um, nice. I, I'll be curious if 1989? they... 1989? Yeah, pretty much. I'll be curious if they... Before uh, Voyager even premiered? <laughs> I'll be curious if they showed that one in theaters the way they did the DS9 one. Um, I would think so. I would think so. Right? Like, it would be fun if they did, because it's probably the... Well, we can both say, like, that was the best way to see that DS9 documentary. Oh, man. And just the, the communal atmosphere. And it's also just a very different atmosphere than you and I would get out of the, uh, like, the St- Star Trek convention. You mm-hmm. know, when they would have, like, screenings of movies there. Um, it, 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 I, I think kind of the... Uh, <laughs> The Star Trek conventions, everybody, they're kind of old veterans at that point, where there's just kind of this this uh, this electricity in the uh, theater when we saw the DS9 documentary that I, I think is pretty unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, maybe that'll be part of the 2024 Trek content to make up for the, uh, <laughs> the shows on streaming, perhaps because of the strikes. But uh, yeah. Okay. So I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod and leave us reviews wherever you get your podcasts. They help greatly with rankings and data and all that sort of thing. Tyler, 
What are we doing next week? Uh, season finale of Star Trek Lower Decks will be airing. Let me see if there's an episode title. We did not get one uh, when we recorded last week. Uh, oh, it's an interesting episode title. Um, I don't think we ever had one quite like this. Uh, it's called episode number 4.10. Oh, very bold. Very bold. Yeah. Okay. can only imagine what that will entail. Okay, you can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam V as in Venomous Tremble Lizards Smith. You can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P, P as in Peace, comma, Rest In, Ed Spilliers. <laughs> okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Robert Dunkey, Robert Dunkey. <laughs> Robert Dunkey, <laughs> that's our short name for him. 